My name is Susie. I have three children, the youngest of whom struggles with anxiety, depression, and suicidal ideation. I never thought this could happen to me, and I miss the signs. Being a parent is really hard, but I'm here to help. I'm talking to other parents and experts to help you with the struggles that your kids may face. I want you to know that you are not alone and there is hope. I'm not a physician, therapist, or counselor. I'm just a mom. I want to see you smile again, take away that pain in them clouds I keep covering up the sun. On this episode of the Just a Mom podcast, I have the distinct honor of interviewing Dr. Samantha DeCaro. She is the Director of Clinical Outreach and Education at the Renfrew Center, which is a, an eating disorders clinic with uh, multiple locations across the country. Dr. DeCaro is a licensed psychologist in Pennsylvania and the co-host of the podcast All Bodies, All Foods. She received her bachelor's degree in psychology at LaSalle University and her doctoral degree in clinical psychology at the California School of Professional Psychology in San Diego. She has been with the Renfrew Center since 2012, completing her postdoctoral residency at the Renfrew Center, Philadelphia, Spring Lane, then holding the position of primary therapist and most recently serving as assistant clinical director. As Renfrew's national spokesperson, Dr. DeCaro has been featured in the media as an eating disorders expert on various television shows, radio programs, podcasts, and online magazines. She is a frequent lecturer and serves as the alumni representative for the Renfrew Center of Philadelphia. Welcome to the Just a Mom podcast, Dr. DeCaro. Thank you so much for having me, Susie. I'm so happy to be here. Well, I'm very happy to have you here, and I wish I wasn't happy to have you here because of the topic that we're going to be covering today, but part of the Just a Mom podcast, is, as our listeners know, is is getting mental health information to people so that they know what to do if and when they need to use it. So that's what I want to do today is really explore and uh, look at what's going on with eating disorders in, the, in this country and how to recognize things and then ultimately how to get help. So we'll just have that little roadmap and get started. Yes, definitely. So Dr. DeCaro, why do you think there has been such a dramatic rise of eating disorders in the last few years? That's such a good question. You know, let's start with the pandemic. You know, we're talking about the last few years, as many folks have probably heard, eating disorders sort of skyrocketed during the pandemic and everyone was wondering what is going on. So many new segments were reaching out to us asking why are eating disorders, they seem to be on the rise. And there really were many factors during that time that sort of created the perfect storm for an eating disorder to not only develop, but for it to be maintained. So to give you an example, we were all isolated. And as we know, even prior to the pandemic, isolation is one of the factors that can really sort of um, create an environment where an eating disorder thrives. So you had the isolation, you had an increase in social media use, and there's lots of research I can talk about the links between social media use and body dissatisfaction and all of that. But essentially, we were online a lot more and we were seeing all of these images of other people and of ourselves, you know, going on Zoom, posting online, 
there, we were just sort of bombarded with, with all of these images and we were, many of us were really comparing ourselves to others. So that can be a risk factor also. There was also food insecurity during the pandemic. People didn't know if they were going to be able to get the food they needed. And as we know, food insecurity is yet another factor that can contribute to eating disorders and disordered eating. There was also a lot of anxiety. There was grief and loss during that time. Fear, all of these things can play into the development of an eating disorder. These things can trigger on an eating disorder. Really, any kind of stressful experience, any kind of trauma, a big transition, that can also trigger on an eating disorder. So what we were seeing, it was all of these factors happening all at once. And we were seeing all of these people developing eating disorders, but also maybe relapsing from an eating disorder maybe they had in the past. So the pandemic really played a role in the rise. It seems that way. But also I think since the pandemic, we've been moving more and more towards virtual experiences, going online, social media, Zoom meetings. So many more people are working from home. And the issue with social media is that we suddenly have access to all of these images, all of these people, and especially for someone who has the tendency to compare anyway that can really put us in a situation where we're feeling really bad about ourselves, that we don't look a certain way. Someone, you know, we're just comparing not only the way we look, but maybe um, how we're doing in life, our accomplishments, things like that. So um, those are all risk factors that can drive someone towards an eating disorder. So social media, I think also my hope is that, I I should say, my hope anyway is that There's more awareness about eating disorders now. I think for a very, very long time, the media perpetuated this myth that eating disorders only happen to young, urban, suburban white girls. And there were many people telling themselves the story that, well, I can't have an eating disorder. I'm not a teenager. Or I can't have an eating disorder. I'm I don't, you know, I'm not thin enough, or I don't, I don't look the way someone with an eating disorder should look. And I'm hoping that those myths are really being challenged and more people maybe are starting to recognize the signs and symptoms of eating disorders, not only in themselves, but others. And maybe more people are reaching out for help and getting help and getting diagnosed. So my hope is maybe that is one of the reasons why it seems like there's an increase. It's hard to say, but I do hope that maybe more people are aware that eating disorders can happen to anyone, any shape, size, ethnicity, gender, it doesn't matter. I'm glad that you brought up the myths of eating disorders because yes, I have, you know, heard those myths of, you know, typically young, white, affluent Mm -hmm. females. And that is a myth is what I'm hearing you say. And that is absolutely not true. Exactly right. Eating disorders can affect anyone at any shape, size, age, gender, race, ethnicity. It really doesn't matter. There are populations that are at elevated risk, but eating disorders can happen to anyone. And it's so important to really spread that fact so people aren't telling themselves the story that 
there's nothing wrong or that they don't really need support when really they deserve to get support for this. These are psychiatric disorders and they, you know, you deserve support if you're struggling with food or your body image. What are some of the populations that are at higher risk? Sure. So, um, so the reality is that if you identify as female, you automatically are at elevated risk. And I think that one of the main reasons for that is sort of the way we've been socialized as women in this culture. You know, we've been dealing with the thin ideal throughout history, you know, yes. sort of these, these um, myths that you have to be thin to be healthy or that you have to be thin to be beautiful. And I think that being socialized as a woman has elevated, it will elevate your risk of developing an eating disorder. So yes, it is true that um, those who identify as female are at elevated risk, but there are many people who are at elevated risk, really anyone who is oppressed in any way. So when we, you know, when we think about the LGBTQ plus community, we think about people who are victims of weight stigma and weight discrimination, really anyone who just doesn't feel safe in our society just existing puts them at risk for an eating disorder. And it makes sense because when you think about it, if you live in a society where you're not treated fairly, you are not treated equally, it will be very tempting for you to maybe pursue a body that would be accepted or even admired by society. So it puts you on a path to try to look that way. And oftentimes what we see is that an eating disorder can be triggered on by something as simple as going on a diet. Mm. 20 to 25% of people who diet will go on to develop a clinical eating disorder. Wow. Yeah. And that stat surprises a lot of people. But dieting is one of the biggest risk factors wow. when it comes to eating disorders. So yeah, there's something about dieting that sort of turns those genes on and an eating disorder is born. So we have to be really careful, especially with kids. You know, when you think about it also, dieting, 95 to 97% of the time, diets fail anyway. And so um, diets are often prescribed for a variety of conditions when in reality, chances are you're probably just going to develop an eating disorder or disordered eating. So what we also mm. see with dieting is that those who diet will sometimes have a disordered relationship with food for years to come. So even if you don't develop an eating disorder, it still will probably damage your relationship with food. Can you expand a little bit on what the difference between an actual eating disorder and disordered eating? Yeah. Oh, I get this are. question all the time. I yes, bet you do. It's a great question. So when we're talking about eating disorders, eating disorders are very complex psychiatric disorders. They are mental health conditions, and they're sort of a set of criteria that has to be met in order to be diagnosed with an eating disorder. So we're talking about symptoms. So the different symptoms we might see depending on the eating disorder might be restriction. So that's simply just denying yourself food, 
So restriction, binging, purging, um, all of these symptoms, depending on the frequency and duration of those symptoms, might fit into the diagnosis of an eating disorder. So, um, but, you know, when we think about disordered eating, it's helpful to think of it on a spectrum. So at the far end of that spectrum, we would see those clinical eating disorders where they're happening so frequently and have been happening for many, many months and, you know, someone will meet criteria for that eating disorder. But a lot of us sort of fall in the middle of that spectrum. Um, when we think about the other end of the spectrum, which is sort of like a healthy relationship with food and a healthy relationship with your body, these are people who really aren't thinking about food that much. There's not really any anxiety or guilt when it comes to food. They're feeling pretty comfortable in their own skin. They're not really thinking about their body very much either. But in this culture, most of us will fall somewhere in the middle where we may engage in some disordered eating. Maybe it's not to the extreme where it would meet criteria for an eating disorder, but it's still disordered nonetheless. A lot of people are surprised when I say that dieting is really a form of disordered eating. Hmm. You know, you're going against your body's cues and signals. You're relying on an external set of rules to decide what to do about your own appetite and your own, you know, your own needs. And so many times there are people who are sort of dabbling in disordered eating and it's causing them anxiety, stress. Um, they're maybe not feeling very good about their body. Maybe they are feeling very guilty about the way they look or ashamed about the way they look. And you might fall somewhere in the middle. I, mm. I always tell people that you really don't need to have a clinical eating disorder to get support around your relationship with food or your relationship with your body. You don't have to wait until it sort of gets to that level. It doesn't ever need to get to that level when there are therapists and dietitians who can help you have a healthier relationship with food and with your body. So, um, so body image is also a part of it too. You know, on that far end of the spectrum, folks who have an eating disorder most of the time are really dealing with a lot of body dissatisfaction, maybe even to the level of body dysmorphia, um, where they don't really see themselves the way the rest of the world sees them. And so, um, and then again, somewhere in the middle, just not feeling good about how you look, wanting to change how you look, maybe going to extremes sometimes to try to change how you look. So, um, so the spectrum sort of can help folks really conceptualize what's going on. Sure. And I'm going to guess, and I, I'm not a doctor, I'm not a therapist, I'm just a mom, but I'm going to guess that most human beings at some point in time have some sort of body image and food relationship issue. Is that an accurate statement or not? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Yes. I, I don't okay. think I've ever met anyone who has never had some kind of issue with food or their body. I mean, when you think about it, it's so difficult to live in this culture and have a peaceful relationship with food in your body. So I just want to validate for any listeners mm -hmm. out there, we have all probably had thoughts, feelings, behaviors that are disordered in some way because of the culture that we live in. Mm -hmm. We are taught from day one in this culture that weight gain is bad. 
You know, we're taught that certain foods are bad and certain foods are good. Um, we're taught which bodies deserve admiration and respect. And, um, and, and also, you know, there is an entire medical field that equates really thinness with health and fatness with sickness. And mm. it's, and it and the reality is that not all thin people are healthy and not all mm -hmm. fat people are sick. And I say fat mm. as a descriptive term, just to describe a body type. Mm -hmm. um, I think in this culture, fat has become a bad word. And the reality is it's really just a way to describe a body because bodies come in all shapes and sizes. Mm. Mm -hmm. So I, I think that in this culture, we're just taught that health comes in one size mm. and it's just, it's just not true. And so mm. I think, you know, there are many people who try to pursue weight loss and try to pursue a smaller body and dieting and some of the behaviors that folks turn to, to do that are the very behaviors that turn on an eating disorder. Mm. What if a person is overweight and has health conditions that are associated with being overweight and are told by medical professionals like, you know, your high blood pressure is related to your weight. You need to lose weight. How do people in that category, and because I know that that's a huge number of people in our country as well, how do people in that category then approach weight loss for their health in a, in a mindfully healthy way and not a quote unquote diet, which I had no idea diets were so dangerous. Yeah. A lot of people are surprised by that. And I, I think it's not uncommon, unfortunately, for folks to go into the doctor's office with a health problem. And then this prescription is you need to lose weight. And one of the things that we teach in eating disorder recovery and eating disorder treatment is that there are ways to improve health without focusing on weight loss. When we start focusing on weight loss as the measure of how well we're doing physically or how well we're doing emotionally, that's when we start to get into trouble. And so the health issues, you know, you had mentioned high blood pressure. There are other health issues that I think get you know, um, body size really gets blamed for it when in reality, people of all shapes and sizes can have high blood pressure. What would the advice be if someone had high blood pressure and they were thin? Yeah, and, good question. <laughs> yeah. And so, you know, why would it be treated differently? Why would someone leave with a prescription for weight loss and the other person would leave with a prescription for something else. Hmm. And so I really encourage people, Reagan Chastain is one of the great thinkers um, in this area of weight stigma and weight discrimination. I really encourage people to sign up for her newsletter. She puts out a lot of free wonderful information. She's on podcast. If you want to learn more about some of the misconceptions about weight and health and the science behind um, why focusing on weight loss is not the answer. Hmm. So um, I always pl plug the work of Reagan Chastain because okay. um, she, she really does a wonderful job breaking all that down 
where um, you know she's read all the research, so she breaks it down for folks so we so we don't have to read it and we can better understand it. Excellent. Yeah. Well, that's always helpful for you know, people like me who are not scientists and don't want to wade through all of the scientific and clinical studies and right. to get the information. What can parents do to help their children have an appropriate, healthy attitude towards food, their weight, their body image? Yes. Wonderful question. So there are so many things parents can do. And I I often talk about all of the different protective factors that parents can put in place, not just parents, but coaches, teachers. Mm -hmm. If you have a child anywhere in your life, you know, Mm -hmm. I mean, Mm -hmm. protective factors can be put in place all the time. And so to give you an example of some protective factors, we talked about dieting. Mm -hmm. Don't diet in front of a kid. Don't suggest Mm -hmm. a kid goes on a diet. Um, Really important just to take a look at your own relationship with food and your body and be more mindful about the way you're talking about food in front of a child. You know, are Mm -hmm. you saying to a child, oh, I shouldn't be eating this. I'm so bad for eating this or, um, or making comments about what the child is eating, you know, um, making judgments about what the child is eating all of those sort of comments, the child can internalize. And then that becomes the voice that lives in their head when they grow up. Mm. They start beating themselves up for eating this or eating that, or, you know, that guilt and that anxiety can, can be there for years to come. So, Mm. so parents can be very careful about the way you're talking about food in eating disorder recovery. We have this phrase, all foods fit where, you know, it's really about learning how to have a healthier relationship with food. How can you have food in a peaceful way? Also, I really encourage folks who are in eating disorder recovery and parents who want to support their loved one to really approach food um, where it's more than just fuel. You know, Mm -hmm. food can be a source of connection, culture, pleasure, even comfort at times, and all of that's okay. And Mm. to be able to allow those experiences without guilt or shame. And that can be really helpful for for a child to grow Mm -hmm. up in an environment where all foods are okay. I mean, Mm -hmm. I talk a lot about scarcity mindset and how when we teach children that they're not allowed to have a certain food or a certain food is forbidden, it creates this mindset that it's like, I got to have it. And so creating a sort of freedom around food can really help a child have a healthier relationship with it. Um, I think also parents can do a lot around body image um, to be really careful about the way you talk about your own body around your child or the bodies of others. Mm. You know, if you see a celebrity on TV that lost weight, are you saying things like, oh, they look great. They look so healthy now when we really have no idea, you Mm -hmm. know, what's going on with this person. We have, you know, weight loss can be a sign of depression, trauma, and eating disorder. I mean, we really have no idea what's going on with someone by just looking at them. That's true. Yeah. So to be really careful about um, the way that we're, we're talking about our own bodies and the sort of 
things that we assume about other people based off of the way they look. I think it's important to teach your children that all that people come in all shapes and sizes. Body diversity is a real thing and you don't have to look a certain way to be healthy, mm-hmm. that you can actually be healthy, you know, um, at a variety of different shapes and sizes. So, um, there's so much more I could probably say, um, but I'll, I'll sort of, um, maybe I'll end with this one is helping your child be more connected to their own body, you know, helping them tune in to their body signals and cues, um, really checking in with your child and prompting them to identify maybe what they're feeling in their body. You know, if they're feeling full, if they're feeling hungry, if they're feeling, you know, any kind of internal sensation can also open the door to talk more about emotions. Mm. You know, you're feeling those like butterflies in your tummy or is your heart beating really fast? You know, checking in with your child about their body can help them be more connected to their body and um, and really put them in a position where they can start to honor their body's signals and their body's mm-hmm. needs. So mm-hmm. the sooner we can teach our child that our body has important messages for us, the better off our kids will be. That's really good because I can see it going in in both directions where, you know, you need to stop eating when you're full, right? That's your body's way of telling you to stop eating, correct? Mm -hmm. Okay. Mm -hmm. And then I do know that, you know, myself included, I have eaten when I have not been hungry because of, you know, oh, was I sad or lonely or tired or, you know, was I eating to try to comfort myself in some way? And I know that that can also develop into a type of an eating disorder, right? Am I correct about that? Sure. Well, I think that, you know, if that's the only tool in the toolbox, Mm -hmm. it can become a problem. You know, if, if you're noticing that every time you're sad, you're turning to food to cope with that sadness in some way, you're not actually talking about your feelings. You're not actually processing them. Yeah. I mean, of course that will, um, probably interfere with your ability to really, you know, heal from whatever it is that, that it's making you sad. Um, but I think it's normal to sometimes turn to food for comfort. Mm-hmm. We've all done it and we will all yep. continue to do it. And I think the important thing is awareness of, okay, I, I, I'm aware that I was sad and I turned to food. I don't have to feel really ashamed about that or really guilty about it. And maybe next time I might try something different. So it's really only an issue if it is really a pattern and it's really like a go-to strategy every time you're feeling something distressing. Okay. I bring that up because I know that it can be healthy or unhealthy depending on how often you're, a person might be going to, to food. And if a, a parent or you know you see a loved one who's continuing to do that, then that's probably a red flag as well. I, yeah, I mean, if if you're noticing a pattern of a loved one turning to food or turning away from food as their only strategy to manage their emotional experiences, I think that could be a sign that something deeper might be going on. And there would definitely be other signs too if someone was struggling with an eating disorder. But absolutely, if you're noticing patterns like that, um, it could it could be a good time to sort of open up the conversation about what might be going on. Um, maybe it's just someone is maybe the child is struggling with coming up with other ways to cope, mm-hmm. and maybe it's about 
you know, adding tools to that toolbox so that the child knows that food isn't the only tool when I'm feeling this way. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Let's talk about what some of the other signs of an eating disorder are so that people can be on the lookout for those with their children or their loved ones. Sure. So with eating disorders, um, you know, depending on which eating disorder it is, there can be different ways the eating disorder presents, but there are some things that really most eating disorders have in common. Um, One is the body image piece. So with, with the exception of certain eating disorders like ARFID, which is actually doesn't have a body image component, when we're talking about anorexia, bulimia, or binge eating disorder, there is usually a very, um, very intense dissatisfaction with the body. So that could manifest as someone just talking a lot about their weight, talking a lot about um, not liking how they look. Maybe they are wearing really baggy clothes because they want to hide their body. Um, Maybe they're weighing themselves multiple times a day. Um, Maybe they're constantly measuring their body or checking their body in some way. So body dissatisfaction um, is usually part of the territory with eating disorders. So so you would definitely see some of that. Um, You might see the person becoming more and more isolated, Hmm. more anxious around food, um, also talking about food a lot, you know, being hyper aware of ingredients in food, calories in food, um, maybe even being really interested in food, maybe watching the food network a lot. Mm -hmm. You know, it's very interesting. Semi-starvation and starvation can have that effect on the brain where Mm -hmm. you actually become preoccupied with food if you're in a state of, uh, yeah. So there's mm-hmm. lot, there are studies on that. And um, so you might, you know, it's not uncommon for folks with eating disorders. They might be really excellent chefs and they might make these big dinners and bake for other people, but they really won't be eating, eating it themselves. So that interest in food can sometimes be there. Depression is usually part of the territory. I always say, you know, a starved brain is an anxious brain. A starved Mm. brain is a depressed brain. So, um, you might see very rigid thinking, um, depression, even suicidality. Those with eating disorders are at elevated risk for suicidality. Um, yeah, just a really a hyper focus and obsession on food and weight, um, are, are some of the things that you'll most likely see across the board with eating disorders. Okay. Are there ways that we can help prevent someone from developing an eating disorder? Absolutely. Yeah. So the more protective factors we can put in place, the more we can protect someone from genetic vulnerabilities or other risk factors that are just part of our culture. But very similar to some of the things I was talking about earlier, um, you know, kind of rewriting the narrative around health. Um, you know, I think that in this culture, we're taught that thin is healthy and, um, you have to be thin to be healthy and, and, and weight gain is always an unhealthy thing. And, you know, if we're teaching children that, you know, if if we're reinforcing those beliefs at home and at school, 
those are the beliefs that fuel eating disorders. So helping kids understand that health, um, there are many, many aspects of health that go far beyond just the physical. And so having good mental health, um, learning how to reduce stress, getting good sleep, all of these things are very good for our health that have nothing to do with our body size. So, um, so teaching children sort of like a new definition of what it means to be healthy, I think is really important. Um, so, and, and also teaching children that bodies come in all shapes and sizes, and that's a normal thing. That's, you know, um, we're kind of, a lot of bodies are underrepresented in the media. And so it can be really easy for a kid to assume that there's a certain type of body that someone should have. And the reality is that bodies come in all shapes and sizes, and um, there's a huge genetic component to what size your body will be. Mm-hmm. And so if we can teach children that at a young age, I think it'll take away a lot of the shame that they may feel if, you know, if they are in, in a larger body or um, it will also help children not treat each other differently, you mm. know, if, if they know that bodies are just naturally supposed to be different. So that's really important too. And I think that um, as far as protective factors, really prioritizing mental health um, is so important, um, keeping an eye out for uh, mental health s- symptoms and also normalizing treatment for mental health the same way, you know, we treat our physical health. It's like you go to the doctor when you're sick and you can go to a therapist when you're not feeling so good emotionally. Mm-hmm. So protecting mental health is really important. Do you think that with eating disorder development, does the depression or anxiety usually precede the eating disorder? Is that how that works? Or is it, do they tend to develop kind of at the same time, go hand in hand? Great question. Um, I, I think it can go both ways. So there are some folks who have that pre-existing anxiety mm-hmm. and it becomes sort of a risk factor to the development of eating, eat, an eating disorder and same with depression. But for folks who are actively experiencing an eating disorder, most likely they will develop a level of anxiety or depression along the way. Because when your brain isn't being nourished properly, that's sort of what happens. Mm-hmm. So it can exacerbate a pre-existing condition and it can trigger on anxiety, depression that maybe wasn't even there mm-hmm. before. Um, so, so yeah, so it can, it can be both. Um, but either way, I think that the eating disorder will make anxiety and or depression much worse. Does it ever occur that a person who is actively in an eating disorder does not have anxiety or depression or both? Um, sometimes, uh, yeah, I, I, um, in my experience and as far as the research that's out there and, and the genetic studies that have been done as well, we do see certain disorders commonly co-occur with eating disorders and anxiety and depression are very common disorders that we often see. Um, <clears throat> I've worked with eating disorders for well over a decade now, mm-hmm. and it is extremely rare to work with someone who doesn't have anxiety and or depression 
and an eating disorder, but some other common co-occurring disorders, OCD, PTSD, um, ADHD, which surprises mm. a lot of people, but it makes yeah. sense because mm. some of the uh, issues that we see with ADHD really can interfere with someone's relationship with food. Mm. Um, and so, uh, yeah, so there are often a lot of co-occurring disorders that we have to treat simultaneously. Um, so it's never really just treating the eating disorder, it's treating all the things that travel along with it. That was my next question was, okay, so that seems like it would further complicate treatment because you're not just attacking one, attacking is probably not the right word, but you're not working to help the person get healthy in the realm of food, but you're also working with the, all these other things that you just mentioned. Is that an accurate statement that it really makes oh, it challenging? Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Um you really do need to treat everything at once because what we've found is that if you're only treating one thing, you can expect to see an increase in the symptoms of the other disorders. Mm. So to give you an example, if you're someone who has an eating disorder and OCD and you go to a therapist for OCD treatment, you will probably notice that as you're working on your OCD and you're facing fears and it's very challenging work, you will likely see an increase in your eating disorder mm. symptoms or at least your urges to use those symptoms. So um, what we have found in treatment is that it's really important that mental health providers use a modality that can address multiple things across the board. So you're not only treating the eating disorder, but you're treating the common denominator that's likely fueling all of these mm. disorders at once. And what we believe that common denominator is, is emotional avoidance. Mm. So the work becomes learning how to really feel your feelings, lean into them, face fears, um, learn skills like mindfulness, learning how to regulate emotions in healthy ways. So the common den denominator is really learning how to get better at feeling. Hmm. And once you can do that, you start to see improvement across all of the areas, whether it's anxiety, PTSD, or the eating disorder. That is fascinating to me because I think when I think about eating disorders, they're a process, a processing type of addiction or disorder, right? Is that an accurate way to say that? Well, the way that we conceptualize eating disorders, we, re we really see them as emotional disorders. And what we mean by that is that the symptoms of an eating disorder, whether it's restricting, binging, purging, overexercise, it doesn't really matter. These are really strategies to cope with, avoid, escape, dampen distressing emotional experiences. Hmm. And so when you can learn how to sit with your emotions, allow them to rise and fall, or when you can learn skills to think about things differently and, and sort of regulate maybe what you're feeling, 
this is really the foundation of the work is learning how to navigate your emotional experiences without turning to a harmful strategy to cope. Mm. And this is true for many, many emotional disorders as well. So Mm -hmm. this is why this treatment model is so effective is because the, the common thread throughout these disorders is emotional avoidance. Mm. So mindful, non-judgmental awareness of emotions is really the key skill mm. in all of this. Which takes me back to the, and I love the, the phrase that you use, protective factors that as parents or grandparents or aunts and uncles or teachers or what, whoever, at a young age, we can teach our children to identify their feelings. And that is that covers the gamut of all mental health issues and problems. And my hope with the Just a Mom podcast is that young parents are listening to this because I wish I had heard all of the things that I have heard since starting this podcast 27 years ago before I had my first child because I would have done things a lot differently. Mm -hmm. And that is absolutely one of the things that I would have done, I think, in a better way is teaching my kids to identify their feelings, to talk about their feelings. And I would have tried to model that better for them because I don't think I did a very good job of modeling that. My generation, that's not how we were raised. And so we didn't we didn't talk about our feelings very much. So I'm still learning mm-hmm. to, to, to do that in a, in a healthy way myself at age 54. So. Yeah, it's difficult work. And, and I think you're definitely not alone. There are so many people who just really don't know what to do with their feelings, can't identify what they're feeling don't really know what the point of emotions even are. It's sort of like, let me just figure out how to how to get rid of my emotions. And it's such a gift if you can give your child a safe space to talk about what they're feeling, to name that feeling, to, you know, figure out why they might be feeling what they're feeling, to connect with their body. And, and then also, I mean, what a gift if you're able to model that for your children as mm-hmm. well. Um, it's really, it can really set your child up for healthier relationships, um, with others, but also with themselves. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. So you talk about your approach to treating eating disorders and I assume, and I shouldn't assume anything, but I assume you're talking about the Renfrew Center's approach to treat treating eating disorders, or are you talking about the eating disorder community as a whole. So, yeah, so I'm I'm mainly talking about the Renfrew Center's approach to treating eating disorders because that's what I've been trained in and and that's what I believe to be effective with eating disorders, but there are many roads to recovery. There are a lot of different types of modalities that therapists might use to treat an eating disorder. Um, but I will say that the consensus in the eating disorder field really is that treating an eating disorder really does require a multidisciplinary team. And so no matter what modality you choose to use, um, you still will have a multidisciplinary team doing it. And so what I mean by that is it's, it's not just a therapist that treats an eating disorder because eating disorders affect the mind and the body 
and there's food involved and there's so many moving parts. A multidisciplinary team is usually a therapist, a registered dietitian, a primary care physician, sometimes a psychiatrist to manage psychiatric medication. And so it's really a team effort to restore mental and physical health. So, um, so that is one thing that I think is true across the board in the field. But with the Renfrew Center's treatment model, we, we chose an approach that is transdiagnostic. And what I mean by that is it's just kind of a fancy word for treating multiple diagnoses at once because eating disorders so rarely travel alone. It doesn't make sense to pick an approach that only targets the eating disorder. We really do have to pick an approach that targets everything. So that's why we chose the modality that, that we did. So, um, mm -hmm. okay. So then if a parent is concerned that his or her child might have an eating disorder, calling, you know, a therapist that's been recommended to you for, you know, general anxiety or therapy is probably not the right move <laughs> is what I hear you saying. Yeah. It, well, it really is important to work with a team who has experience and training in eating disorders. Um, so, so ideally you really want not only your therapist to be trained in eating disorders, but the dietitian as well, the psychiatrist and the doctor, mm -hmm. um, that can be harder to find sometimes, mm -hmm. but, um, but having a therapist, I mean, if you can find a therapist who specializes in eating disorders, most likely they'll have their own list of dietitians and psychiatrists and doctors that they usually work with. So your therapist can hopefully recommend you, um, that you go to, to one of the people that they're familiar with. Okay. So, so the therapist can really be a support to you and, um, get a team set up, okay. um, de depending on what level of care that, that you need. So eating disorders, of course, I mean, they vary in severity. And so some people are probably gonna, going to need more support and structure and supervision and might need a higher level of care, but an experienced provider can give you an assessment and then recommend what level of care would be best for you. Okay. Let's talk about the Renfrew Center's levels of care, because mm -hmm. I, I do know that you have different levels and not everyone who is struggling with an eating disorder needs full on inpatient hospitalization, but some people do. So just kind of tell us a little bit about what the Renfrew Center has to offer in terms of the different levels. Yeah. So we, we offer all levels of care. And so at the highest um, level of care, we have residential so residential treatment is 24-7 structure and support and supervision for someone who is really struggling to break that cycle, that eating disorder cycle, or maybe they're also really struggling um, physically and they really need that 24-7 support of a nursing team and doctors and that sort of thing. So residential um, residential uh, care is, is one of the highest. And then I like to think of it as a staircase. It's sort mm -hmm. of like um, you can step down gradually to each level when you really feel like 
you've mastered the previous level. You feel ready. You you feel motivated to move on to the next level. And so um, after residential comes day treatment, also known as partial hospitalization. That's usually five days a week where you have your team working with you. You're usually eating two meals a day in the program, and then you manage a meal on your own. Usually dinner, you'll manage that on your own, and then you have weekends free to practice your skills in the home environment. After um, day treatment, then we have IOP, which stands for Intensive Outpatient Programming. That's usually three days a week, sometimes three nights a week, depending on your schedule and depending on the site. Um, But that is where you only go three days. And so you have you have more days in the week where you're on your own practicing your skills with with less structure and support. After IOP, then we move down to the outpatient level. And that's where you're seeing your team for your weekly appointments. Maybe you're seeing a therapist, a dietitian, maybe you're seeing a psychiatrist as needed. Um, and, and the good thing about the levels of care is that you have the support of your team to collaborate with you and decide how things are going, whether or not you're ready to step down, or maybe, maybe it would be better to step up and get some more support if things aren't going so well. So you can sort of move throughout the levels of care, depending on how you're doing and what your needs are. Mm -hmm. So um, we also have virtual programming, which is really wonderful for people who aren't near a site um, or maybe they're in college and and they, um, you know, aren't, they, they, they aren't wanting to leave college. But so the virtual programming can be really great and it really helps treatment be accessible for, for people. So um, we do have that virtual programming as well. I'm glad you brought that up. I was going to ask that question because, of course, people who live in rural areas, you know, far from anything might not, they might be hours away from the nearest yeah. um, treatment option. So that's great to, that you have that virtual um, availability. Is that always um, the right approach for a person or are there scenarios when the virtual option just really doesn't fit the need? Yeah, that's a good question. And I think it it's it it reminds me why a thorough assessment is is so important to be able to get that assessment and have someone hear your entire history, hear exactly what you're struggling with so that they can help you decide what environment would be best for your recovery. And can give you a recommendation based off of research and experience. It's sort of like, okay, based on what I'm hearing, you were really struggling. You're having a really hard time managing your, your, these symptoms in your environment right now. It sounds like virtual might not be the level of support that you would need to break the cycle. And so, yeah, for some folks, it makes more sense to go into an in-person program where there's that support of the community, the support of the treatment team, and everyone is right there, you know, um, where you can talk to them in person and it's just a different environment compared to virtual where virtual there's, there's obviously going to be more freedom and there'll, there'll be less opportunity to really have that supervision and that support. 
Um, so yeah, so it really does depend. Everyone's different. Everyone's journey is different. We do want to make sure that we're recommending a level of care that meets the individualized needs of every patient. So individualizing treatment is crucial because everyone, everyone has every, everyone's eating disorder is different. And so everyone's treatment experience is going to be different as well. As I mentioned earlier, the Renfrew Center has locations uh, in multiple cities across the country. Do people come from all over the country to different treatment centers within the Renfrew Center? Oh, absolutely. All over the world, really. Yeah. Um, We'll come to, to get treatment. We have two residential sites one in Philadelphia at our Spring Lane site, and our other residential site is in Coconut Creek, Florida. And so, yes, folks from all over the country, all over the world will come and get treatment there if need be. One of the issues with all healthcare and mental health care is um, affordability, payment. Mm-hmm. And that can be such a barrier for so many of us. Talk a little bit about how that works at the Renfrew Center. Sure. So a lot of people don't realize that in many insurance companies do cover treatment for eating disorders at all levels of care. And um, I'm so happy to, to report that Renfrew accepts more than 400 insurance plans nationwide. Wow. And yeah, and we have contracts with most managed care companies for every level of care, including virtual level of care. And for folks who are out of network, we will routinely petition um, for those out of network carriers to extend their benefits to members mm. if if they need treatment. So we will will advocate if if we really believe that a patient needs treatment. Um so, and then there's also the Renfrew Center Foundation, which is a nonprofit organization that's supported by private donations, and it's also um, supported by funding from the Renfrew Center. But the Renfrew Val- Foundation actually provides financial assistance to folks who might not otherwise be able to access mm. treatment. So, um, the good news is that we have program information specialists where if you contact Renfrew, they'll walk you through all this financial stuff because it's so confusing. Yes. You don't have to figure it out on your own. And so um, we offer those consultations and we really try to design a financial plan that will work for whoever is calling. So um, so we have these specialists who who understand how insurance works and can walk you through all of it. It's great that you have a foundation that helps those who who maybe are not insured or underinsured because that is often the case. Um, and that is really encouraging to me to hear that um, Renfrew Center cares that people get treatment. And makes a way to pay for it. Yeah. Yeah. It's so important. I mean, accessibility is such an issue. And I think that if you're in the mental health field, it's important that we're just trying to make things more accessible, whether it's free resources or, um, or, or helping with, with payment. I mean, whatever it may be, um, accessibility is a huge issue and we all really need to be fighting to make treatment more accessible. Mm Mm-hmm. Are there any questions 
that I have not asked you that you feel like we need to, t- to talk about or discuss or important points that I may have missed? Um, I don't think so. We, we covered quite a bit. Um, I mean, I could probably do an entire episode on what parents can do to help their children have a better relationship with food in their body. I can talk for hours about that, but, um, but I think we covered a lot of that already. And, um, we talked about folks who are most vulnerable with eating disorders, all the co-occurring disorders. I think we I think we covered quite a bit. Well, I might hold you to that. And, and in the future, maybe we will do an episode just on how parents can help their kids have a healthy relationship with food. Oh, sure. It's yes, I would. I would love to do that. Yes, <laughs> okay. I can talk for a very long time about that. Okay. okay. Well, good to know. I appreciate yeah. that. Well, I really want to thank you, Dr. DeCaro, for being on this episode of the Just a Mom podcast and helping to educate our listeners on things to look for, ways to help prevent the development of eating disorders, and then how to find treatment if they have a loved one who needs treatment. So thank you so much for your time. Oh, thank you so much for having me on this episode. I really appreciate it. Well, thanks again for being on this episode of the Just a Mom podcast. If you or someone you know is struggling with suicidal thoughts or ideation, please call the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline at 988. If you found this podcast helpful, please subscribe and leave a rating and or a review wherever you listen to podcasts. Also, please share this with your friends and anyone you think may find these interviews helpful. Thanks again for listening to Just a Mom.